0: Good afternoon and welcome everybody. Uh, there's a special uh, personal delight in introducing Yaakov uh, Rapkin to you, um, but I'll keep it short. <laughs> Professor Yaakov uh, Rabkin uh, teaches history at the University of Montreal in Canada, and among his uh, many works, at least two deserve to be especially mentioned in the context of an Israel Studies seminar. First, his book, A Threat from Within, A Century of Jewish Opposition to Zionism, (laughs) in which uh, Professor Rapkin offers a detailed account of the history of Jewish opposition from ultra-orthodoxy to reform Judaism to uh, the Zionist ideology and and Zionism uh, at large and to the State of Israel. Uh, This book won several prizes and was translated to at least 14 languages. And uh, second, I mentioned uh, his more <laughs> recent book, What is Modern Israel?, in which uh, Professor upkin sheds new uh, critical light on some of the more fundamental tenets of the Israeli polity. And his most recently published book, his uh, co edited volume, details of which are available on leaflets uh, we put outside, <coughs> is a co edited volume on demodernization. And the title of his talk today is Israel the Russian connection. Professor Avgen, thank you for coming.
1: Thank you. Well, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. And I was told that I should be speaking for 35 minutes, which I'll try to comply with. Uh, and to begin with, I would like to say that uh, the adjective Russian <coughs> has to be defined. I don't mean the, the Russian Federation of today. I rather mean the Russian Empire of the turn of the 20th century which included a uh, large Jewish population. So when I see Russian, I don't mean either Russian ethnicity or the current state of Russia, but uh, the, the, the borders of the Russian Empire. As you know, the Russian Empire had a tremendous diversity of, uh, of, na- na- of confessions of peoples. But there was also a great diversity of Jews uh, on the territory of the Russian Empire. And you starting with Bukharan Jews in in Central Asia and then Georgian and mountain Jews in the Caucasus. But the protagonists of what we are going to talk about today are none of them, but rather the Jews in the Pale of Settlement, uh, uh, or some people would call them the Yiddish land, Uh, the group of people who were united by a common language, uh, with different accents and uh, dialects, but the common language was Yiddish, Uh, and uh, and they are the protagonists of the story. We have to understand that the non-Ashkenazi Jews, not only in Russia, but also elsewhere, played a very insignificant role in the Zionist movement. Uh, In the 1930s, the share of non-Ashkenazi members uh, of the World Zionist Organization, where you had to pay a symbolic amount to be a member, uh, the percentage of non-Ashkenazi Jews was 0.37%, which is slightly more than one-third of a percent. (laughs) Um, uh, That gives you the whole picture that the Russian Jews, in fact, uh, we'll see why, became the uh, the messengers of the Zionist uh, idea, uh, they spread the Zionist gospel around the world, so much so that, for example, in a book on the history of Moroccan Jewry, and I was in Morocco promoting that book on Jewish opposition to Zionism, uh, the author offered me his book, a very impressive book by Mohammed Habib, and he said, in that book that the first Zionist cell in Morocco was started by Russian Jews from France. So we'll see why it is so important to understand the Russian dimension. Uh, As you know, because I think one of the speakers earlier uh, talked about, uh, must have talked about William Hechler and his, uh, the Anglican... uh, uh, chaplain of the British Embassy in Vienna, who introduced Herzl to the Zionist idea, to I'm the sorry. idea of. Huh? This,
0: this was in the Oxford Center of Hebrew and Jewish Studies. Right? Ah, it wasn't here.
1: Okay. Well, so, but you know the story that this essentially uh, uh, Protestant idea became uh, accepted by Herzl and his friends um, by the end of the 19th century. The idea of ingathering the Hebrews in the Holy Land. Uh, by earthly means, without waiting for the Messiah, without expecting any miracles, uh, just practically getting them there. And uh, the the founders of the Zionist movement, including Herzl himself, were German-speaking intellectuals of Jewish origin, usually rather estranged from traditional Judaism, who had uh, very daring visions of what this Zionist project would be. Actually, the person who coined the term Zionism later became uh, disillusioned with the movement and turned into what the media call uh, ultra-Orthodox Jewry. Uh, it became very critical of the Zionist movement, but the Zionist movement really was uh, a general staff of German-speaking intellectuals. But the general staff, when we talk about it, presupposes that the generals have an army and they didn't have it. Uh, they didn't have it because Jews in Austria, in Germany, in France, in Britain were either indifferent or actually hostile to to the Zionist idea and what uh, my namesake was just saying. Uh, The uh, reasons were sometimes religious, but sometimes they were rather practical because many Jews in Western Europe and in the United States recognized an anti-Semitic motive in the Zionist message. Namely, the Jews are an alien element in European countries and they are eternally alien, it's an almost mystical estrangement from the country they live in. Of course they didn't like it, and uh, that's why these generals remained without the army. Now where were the soldiers, the foot soldiers of Zionism, where did they come from? Well, as you might guess, they came from the Pale of Settlement in the Russian Empire. And the reason they came from that is the special condition in which uh, Jews in the Pale of Settlement found themselves. Uh, As I mentioned, they mostly were Yiddish speakers. They lived in the territory that was contiguous from the Baltic republics of today all the way to Odessa uh, in the south. And uh, they underwent Partial modernization. They became uh, affected by the Jewish version of enlightenment, the They, uh, Many of them became uh, irreligious, they abandoned Judaic practice. Uh, But unlike other Jews, say in France, who would abandon Judaic practice, who would become secularized, But in France the person could move to Paris from his little town in Alsace and uh, become a free thinker and totally erase his Jewish identity. That option was not available to Jews in the Pale of Settlement because with a few exceptions they could not move to the capital cities of Moscow and St. Petersburg and they had to stay where they were. So this unusual Uh, circumstance that they were in fact acculturated largely to the Russian culture, Uh, they were secularized, but they did not have emancipation, they didn't have equal rights. Uh, That created a real identity issue. Who were they if they were no longer observing Judaism, but they were still speaking Yiddish and living in the Jewish shtetls, what were they? Uh, Of course, in Jewish tradition we have a whole series of terms that could be applied to people who abandoned Judaic tradition, rasha, apikores, avarian, criminal, transgressor, Uh, none of these are very positive terms. Uh, You wouldn't like to be called that way. Uh, So a new identity emerged, secular Jew. And this is a key notion, I think, to understand the success of the Zionist enterprise among Russian Jews. They became secular Jews, uh, and they fashioned their identity very much like people in their environment. And who were in their environment? Ukrainians and Poles and Lithuanians, all the ethnic groups or national groups that didn't have political independence, that felt, or some of them felt, oppressed by the Russian Empire. And that is how they developed a national or proto-national identity. And eventually, when, after the October Revolution, they came to be known as Jewish nationality. This whole term was invented, Jewish nationality, which was the same people actually from the Russian Empire uh, who found themselves in Palestine uh, translated it into Hebrew, it became Leom Yudi, which is Jewish nationality. Uh, so uh, what triggered really the success, the future success of the Zionist uh, project among uh, Jews of the Pale of Settlement? were events in the Russian Empire, namely the assassination of Alexander II in in March 1881 in St. Petersburg, and uh, a wave of anti-Jewish violence that spread in the Pale of Settlement. In relative terms, the violence was much less significant than, say, the violence in Ukraine in the 17th century. However, the Jews were no longer the same. If in the 17th century they interpreted this violence as divine punishment for their transgressions, these secularized Jews understood it in modern terms. Therefore, they were frustrated, they were angry, they were shocked. Uh, the prospects of integration that they felt were coming and were becoming more positive under Alexander II, who was a relatively liberal emperor, uh, these prospects became dimmed. And this frustration expressed itself in a desire for, for revenge, for pride. Uh, and that's how the first units of Jewish self defense were formed. So it was a modern response to violence. Uh, Many Jews joined uh, various revolutionary groups and became very experienced in revolutionary terrorism. I remind you that the word terrorism was not a negative term at that time. It was rather a a proud term. Uh, People who were fighting against Uh, the officials of the Tsarist regime proudly call themselves terrorists. Uh, So this is the environment in which the Pale of Settlement was living at that time, at the end of the 19th century. Uh, Something else has to be mentioned. Uh, Some Jews uh, could leave the Pale of Settlement These were university-educated Jews or Jews who had certain professions or were particularly important merchants. They could move to St. Petersburg, they could move to Moscow, they could develop pretty much like their brethren in Berlin or Paris. And these Jews were not sympathetic to the Zionist message. So those who became activist in the Zionist movement were almost, without exception, Jews from small towns, from the shtetls. Now what characterized the shtetl was the threat of violence, that became very clear in the 80s, 1880s, and a mix of contempt and fear of their non-Jewish neighbors. In fact, the shtetls were la- la- largely segregated. If you look at uh, the memoirs of Shimon Peres, you could clearly see that the non-Jews lived behind the forest. They were somewhere out there. They really didn't have much contact with them. They had no experience of mixed society, of mixed existence, or coexistence at least. And that's why they became so open to the idea of of a Zionist project. In the violence and frustration of the end of the 19th century, there were three collective solutions that Jews in the Pale of Settlement uh, uh, opted for. One, the most traditional one, was emigration. And that's how almost two million Jews left the confines of the Russian Empire and moved largely to to the New World, to South and North America, Uh, some of them Uh, settled here in Britain, uh, except that there was some legislation promoted by uh, Balfour that prevented them from uh, settling here uh, in 1905, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, So immigration was the most popular uh, uh, option. Uh, Another one was socialist revolution, and Jews in disproportionate numbers joined the Bund, the Jewish Socialist Movement, uh, the Socialist Revolutionaries, and of course the Social Democrats that later split into Mensheviks and Bolsheviks. Uh, And the Jews played a very important role in the October Revolution, in the running of the Soviet state in the 20s and 30s. Um, And the third option was Zionism. Uh, In fact, uh, out of the emigres from the Russian Empire, slightly less than 1% went to Palestine. So it's a very small group of people, 50, fifty-five thousand, 55,000 maybe. Uh, and uh, as I said, they were Jews largely from the shtetls, with one exception, I have to mention it because we have an expert in, here. Jabutinsky comes from a big city, from Odessa, but he really didn't, he was evicted very soon from the Zionist leadership quite successfully. Um, the people who really ran the Zionist establishment in, in Palestine were all, practically all of them, uh, from uh, the shtetls. Actually, I wonder if Jabotinsky would uh, be resurrected today if Likud would accept him as a member because he was way too liberal for today's Likud. <laughs> But we don't deal with iffy history, so we'll leave it aside. Uh, the, uh, what characterized these Russian Jews in Palestine was their age. They were young, by and large. Uh, they were mostly socialists of different hues, of, from hard red to pink. Uh, they were ideologically committed to, to building a new society and to building a new man. Very importantly, they were intrepid, radical, and experienced in terrorism. So they knew that violence is a legitimate tool of attaining political goals. They also were affected by the Russian romanticism of agricultural labor, of special relationship with the land. Uh, some were uh, followers of Leon Tolstoy, who preached communal life and, uh, and connection with the land. Uh, what they didn't have is any exposure to liberal politics, any exposure to ideas of equality, or to civic rather than, nas- rather than ethnic nationalism, because they lived their experience was not that experience of Western Europe, it was experience of Eastern Europe in Russian Empire. And as I said earlier, they did not uh, have the experience of living in mixed society, uh, where you have Jews and non-Jews collaborating and living as neighbors and peacefully. Uh, This had a very important impact on what Israel would become. Uh, what also united these people was a disdain for their own background. They wanted to build a new man. And when, in order to build a new man, you have to disdain the old one. Uh, so if you read uh, the writings of the Zionist public intellectuals, like Josef Brenner or Mikhail Berdichevsky or David Frischman, it sounds like a list of street names in Tel Aviv, but... Uh, <laughs> they were real people (laughs) at one point, Uh, uh, you would find a very undisguised, very clear self-hate. They hated what they used to be, and they wanted to be something else, this romantic image of a new Hebrew uh, who would prove that they are no longer yeshiva students. Uh, And I have a quote from Ben-Gurion of 1922, Uh, it's a very short quote, and he said, addressing a group of Zionist activists in in Palestine, we are not yeshiva students debating the fine points of self-improvement. We are conquerors of the land facing a wall of iron, and we have to break through it. So this, you see, is a new Jew, a new Hebrew that emerges. This idea of being a conqueror and reliance on violence could be seen in poetry, in prose that was written at that time, but it could also be seen in mundane little details. If you open the memoirs of Ariel Sharon, you would discover that as a boy, he received a bar mitzvah gift. When the boy turns 13, he usually gets gifts and he becomes adult according to Jewish tradition. Well, usually it's Judaic books, or in the more modern version, he would get a trip to Florida or something. iPhone. iPhone. (laughs) Uh, But uh, Ariel Sharon received an engraved Caucasian dagger as a bar mitzvah gift. A dagger. A dagger, which is highly unusual as a bar mitzvah gift to this day, I think. Uh, But it shows that the resort to violence was also educational. Educational in the sense that it helped to free Jews from Judaic moral restraints, from emphasis on pacifism and and compliance with the non-Jewish environment. It was educating the new Hebrew in the spirit of defiance and the willpower. And this was very important, the willpower in spite of all the difficulties. who became heroes of that group? Again, I'm talking about Russian Jews only. Uh, Josef Tumpeldor, who became a modern hero. I don't know if in today's Israeli schools he's still venerated, but he certainly was uh, a few decades ago. Uh, he was a veteran of the Russia-Japanese war. Uh, he was decorated with four crosses of St. George, which is a very high distinction. Uh, he was killed in a skirmish with the uh, local population in Palestine in 1920. And a phrase is attributed to him, it's a variation of the Latin phrase, as a matter of fact, uh, how good it is to die for the fatherland. Well, we don't really know what he said his last moments, but that's what the legend says. And he became a hero. He's the, uh, the model that uh, was held up for the new Hebrews that were being educated in Palestine. Another expression that uh, found its way into the educational environment of the new Hebrew is in Hebrew it says, En Brera. There is no choice. We have to fight. There's no choice. We, we, are con- we have to fight and Russian Jews not only made the leadership of the Zionist uh, enterprise in Palestine, uh, but they also became the most influential group among military leaders of the future state of Israel. Uh, uh, The man who did more than anyone else to introduce terrorism into Palestine was, of course, a Russian Jew, Avraham Stern and some of, him, of you may have heard of the Stern Gang that the British didn't appreciate particularly, uh, 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 the, who was a member of several paramilitary groupings. But Russian cultural influence could be seen in the biographies of other military leaders. Uh, Moshe Dayan, Ezra Weitzman, Yitzhak Rabin, Reuven Zevi, Rafael Eitan, and of course Ariel Sharon, are all of Russian ancestry. Uh, And their propensity to use force is legendary. Um, And also what also characterizes them is a lack of interest and a disdain for local population. And that disdain was in a way equal opportunity disdain. It was addressed both to Jews and non-Jews of Palestine. Actually, they disliked local Jews even more than they sl- disliked local non-Jews because they embodied everything that they hated. Religious behavior, uh, compromise with authorities, uh, this pacifist attitudes, which they considered cowardly and not dignified. Um, so they wanted, didn't want to integrate into Palestinian society. They wanted to create a separate society. And the word that they used was afrada. It may remind you of other terms, but afrada means separate development. That's exactly what it means. Uh, another term which I think is very important, and I think it became, they the, the rebaptized one of the ships of illegal emigration in the forties, afal piken. In spite of everything, in spite of everything, will, our will will triumph. This idea of triumph of the will is extremely important that even, you know, the sentence that is a, a phrase which is attributed to Herzl, uh, if you want it, it's not a dream. So again, if you will it, it's not a dream. Uh, so the Russian Jews, in fact, formed the political leadership of, of the Zionist uh, settlement in Palestine. And uh, you could see that in the, composition of the Israeli Parliament in 1960, which is uh, four decades after all immigration from Russia had stopped. Uh, in 1960, 70% of Knesset members were born in the Russian Empire, and another 13 born in Palestine from Russian parents, so that makes 83, <laughs> and that's 1960. and. You wouldn't be surprised, against this background, that you would not find one Israeli Prime Minister who would not have Russian roots. Not one. Uh, Russian meaning Russian Empire, again. Uh, So the, the impact of Russian Jews is tremendous. And they were keeping that political monopoly rather successfully, because, say, German Jews in spite of their contributions to culture and industry in Israel, uh, remained outside of power circles. Uh, needless to say, numerically very important non-Ashkenazi Jews were also kept away. So, uh, the Russian Jews in fact created the political culture of what is today Israel, and uh, they also affected the international support for the, for, for the Zionist project. In the United States particularly, uh, Jews of German descent were either indifferent or hostile to the Zionist project. But when the Jewish, American Jewish establishment was replaced by Russian Jews, who by 1930s and 40s became more wealthier and more active, uh, American Jewish community, by and large, supported the Zionist project. And that of course had a very important financial and political consequences. So here we talk about the I just talked about the Zionist Project, the Zionist Enterprise, the early years of the State of Israel, and the importance of that political culture that had the vestiges and traces of uh, of the Shtetl culture of the Russian shtetl culture. Now, if we move forward in time, uh, we look at Soviet immigration to Israel beginning in the 1970s, uh, which brought to Israel about one million Russian speakers from the former Soviet Union by and large. What characterizes that population are some of the same traits that I mentioned earlier, except uh, in they would be even amplified in the new uh, immigration. Uh, they, they consider themselves member of the Jewish nationality because that's what Soviet official documents indicated. A Jew is a nationality like Uzbek, Ukrainian, or, or Russian, for that matter. Uh, so they did not have any commitment or even knowledge of the Jewish tradition and Judaism. They were. Uh, they were very secularized, and they had a commitment to strengthen the European nature of Israel, European in their understanding what European is. After experience in the Soviet Union, they didn't have any more knowledge of liberal democracy than people who left the Russian Empire, because Soviet Union was hardly a liberal democracy. Uh, nor did they know about political correctness. Uh, What is important is that they were very committed to maintain and strengthen the Zionist nature of the State of Israel when they arrived in the 70s, 80s, and particularly in the 90s. Uh, They entered Israeli society much more successfully than other immigrant groups. If you compare it with Moroccan or Iraqi Jews, who arrived en masse uh, earlier, they didn't have a political impact that the Russian Jews have. Now today you have the, the chairman of the parliament is a Russian of Soviet origin. Uh, you have several, I think a good dozen members of the Knesset who are of Russian origin. Uh, and uh, Russian is a very important language in, in today's Israel. Uh, as any immigrant group, you try to adjust by adopting the values of the dominant society. You usually don't want to acculturate to a dominated group, but to the dominant group. And so Soviet Jews became uh, acculturated to this Israeli political culture, uh, and uh, they adopted, for example, a certain denigration of the Arab and the ultra-religious, the Haredim. Uh, it's a militant ethnic nationalism, and of course the self-righteousness in discourse and behavior. So these things uh, are usually very easy to adopt when you arrive in a new country because uh, that's what identifies you with the dominant group. And in that sense, they are not exceptional. So the very, their political integration in uh, Israel was remarkably fast and remarkably durable. By and large, they vote for the right uh, or extreme right, and quite a few of them, as you may know, are not Jews because the Israeli law of return is very liberal in the sense of defining who is allowed to immigrate to Israel. It's, it goes all the way to grand, one Jewish grandparent is enough to, to authorize immigration to Israel and becoming an Israeli citizen. In fact, it's a variation of the Nuremberg Laws of 1935. Uh, So, quite a few are not Jews. And uh, some of them paraphrase uh, uh, the Russian writer uh, Alexei Nikrasov, who um, wrote, uh, well, I quoted an English translation You may not be a poet, but you must be a citizen. That was the the motive, and uh, today in Israel, you could hear, you may not be a Jew, but you have to be a Zionist. Uh, and in fact, many of them are very brave and courageous soldiers, and integrated in the in the Israeli mainstream quite successfully. Since we are talking about about one million of Russian Jews, uh, it's not surprising that in today uh, tourist statistics. The largest group of visitors to Israel come from the former Soviet Union. Uh, Putin once said that Israel is a little bit of Russia. Uh, uh, he visited there several times. There's a monument that he opened, inaugurated with Prime Minister Netanyahu um, to the heroes of the Second World War, not to the victims of the Holocaust, but it's in Netanya, in Israel. And uh, there's quite important military and industrial cooperation between the two countries. And uh, uh, according to public opinion surveys, Russia is number one in in, terms—among industrialized nations uh, with positive opinion of Israel. It leads the other industrialized countries. Um, So we are talking about— The impact that was important in the beginning of the Zionist project and continues to be very important today. Um, Right-wing or extreme right-wing parties in in Israel maintain links with the right-wing groups in Russia itself, just as Israel has become a role model for right-wing movements across the world. I don't want to belabor the point, you know that uh, yourselves. and in that sense, Israel is a very interesting case of partial modernization. You remember, half an hour ago, I was talking about partial modernization of Jews in the Pale of Settlement, and Israel also is a case of partial modernization, and that reflects Russian experience because all the Russian modernizers, from Peter the Great to Stalin and to, uh, they wanted to modernize the country technically and culturally without political modernization. Um, And that's why uh, Alexander Herzen, another Russian writer, dissident writer of the mid-nineteenth century, was very much concerned about Genghis Khan with the telegraph. Well, in today's terms, you could say with advanced surveillance techniques. Uh, That idea that you could have Technical modernization with political demodernization at the same time is what characterized uh, some cases of, uh, of development, and Israel, I think, fits that model in the sense that its political culture still carries the impact of ghettoized shtetls of Eastern Europe. This idea of ghettoized existence and and the rejection of the new of the non-Jew. Uh, and technological and military modernization of Israel, you know, startup nation, uh, progresses apace with demodernization of its political culture, uh, because as you as Israel becomes more and more advanced in technology, particularly in military technology, uh, its political demodernization is very clear. It has a disdain for in- public international law. Uh, it exemplifies reliance on military power. Uh, Israel supplies surveillance and military know-how to most repressive regimes in the world. Uh, it practices overt discrimination, that the new nationality law is very clear about it. Um, and it inspires ethnic nationalism and, and around the world. In fact, in Eastern Europe, in countries like Hungary or Baltic republics, Israel is held as an example of how a country should be run. It's run for the dominant group with exclu- with the exclusion of the group which groups which are dominated. Just to give you one example, and I'll stop there because I want to be disciplined. Uh, the recent elections, uh, what, three years ago, right, in, in Israel, uh, one of the... Parties, the United Arab List, received 13 mandates, which is quite a respectable number. They were not involved in coalition negotiations because they were, to use the expression, beyond the pale, (laughs) literally. (laughs) They would not be involved in that. Uh, Now, if you go somewhat north, Latvia, uh, Baltic Republic, uh, where the cut party that gathered most votes in recent election, was not involved in negotiations for coalition because they were considered pro-Russian party. So you have a certain similarity here that some are part of the dominant group and therefore legitimate, and some eternally remain beyond the pale. Mm. Thank you so much.